Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkeesian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We are excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to All in a Day's Work. My name is Sarah Rosenthal and I'm speaking today with NYU alumna Susan Jurovics. Susan holds an MBA from the Leonard M. Stern School of Business. In the past, she's worked for Nickelodeon, Mattel, and Sony. She spent several years as the CEO of Pottermore and now she's the EVP and Head of International at Audible. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi Sarah, it's a pleasure to talk with you. So, Susan, your career has taken you to a lot of different places, but I'd love to just start by having you walk our listeners through your career from your first few years out of undergrad until now. Sure. You know, I graduated undergrad with an art degree, and I moved to New York City from a small town that I grew up in outside of Philadelphia, attracted to the energy of the city, really excited to use my creative background and wound up looking at two different environments from a a job perspective. One was in beauty and one was in entertainment. And my thinking at the time was that these two industries were recession-proof. You may not have a lot of money, but you would always go see a movie or keep your internet and and phone bills going. Also in beauty, you may not get a full-day spa, but you may get a, a manicure or a pedicure to just kind of treat yourself. And so I wound up at Nickelodeon and I spent my first seven years out of school in really formative jobs that spanned from consumer products through to marketing, through to building retail stores for the company. And in the days of e-commerce, we got into that too. I left there after I got my MBA at night, wanting to run a full P&L and was one of four global brand directors on Barbie. I had about two years getting venture capital money and starting a a retail venture that was amazing, but was a little before its time. And then I spent 13 years at Sony in a whole variety of different jobs we can talk about before I wound up in the roles that I'm in today. I love hearing about your journey and how you've taken so many different things and really weaved it together and, and continued to build upon each experience. Can you talk a little bit about generally how you approach any decision you're making when it comes to your career, you know, whether it's a decision to take on a new project, to change companies. You mentioned already a few different companies that you've been at. You know, how are you making some of those decisions? Well, I'd love to tell you there was a really big master plan. I think the being practical and intentional, I think the reality is you first have to understand what you really like and what you believe you can add to any job or any situation. And so I I knew for myself very early on as a creative that being around other creative people was something really important to me. I also became very interested, as I mentioned very early on, how you could extend and monetize intellectual property. And I think because of that, that ambition, that curiosity could be played out in a lot of different fields and a lot of different jobs. I often credit my time at Stern and business school as having my eyes become more open to other roles that people did that I didn't even know were jobs. I'm in a field that is a little non-traditional, also a field that can be a little hard to explain in terms of what you actually do and what the outcome is of, of how you spend your time. But I think that it's really understanding what you like, what you're good at, what you're excited by, and how that could translate into a job. 
I'd love to talk a little bit about your time at Sony since a lot of your professional experience has been there. Also the fact that while you were at Sony, you also became a parent. What was the experience like with, you know, finding this balance between taking on new or challenging projects that you're excited about while also navigating, you know, this new job of, of being a parent? So when I started at Sony in 2001, I was probably married for three or four years at that point, wasn't sure if and when I would have children. And it was a really formative experience, not only professionally, but to become a parent and be navigating maternity leaves, coming back to work, figuring out how you juggle this amazing addition to your family and how you learn to sort of separate yourself into these different lives of work life and home life. And one thing I learned very early on, particularly being a parent and in a place like Sony, which is a huge company, I really learned to put myself out of my comfort zone and to be reaching out to people, many of whom were either in my company or even in my industry that I didn't know that were parents and ask for help and ask for their guidance of the situation that I was in and how they handled it. I typically looked at women that were a few years more advanced than I was, either in their career or their parenting, and be able to ask them, how are you handling traveling with an infant? Or when my kids got to be a little bit older, how are you navigating parent-teacher conferences or after-school plays or activities that you want to do with your kids? And I found that there's typically not one right answer, but that talking with a lot of other women that were in similar situations, either that I was in at the time or had recently been in those situations, if you were open to asking for help and maybe having enough vulnerability to show that you don't have all the answers, women instantly started talking about their own personal situations and giving lots of hacks and tricks of the trade. And I'm still in touch with these women, uh, which is amazing. That's so great. So you also, when you started working at Pottermore, you moved your family to London. Can you just give us some insight into your experience working internationally and how a lot of that differs actually from working from a more US-centric company? You know, I've, I've been privileged in every role that I've had, let me start by saying that, because these companies and brands that I've worked with and for are big, they're global. And I knew very early on, in fact, studying at Stern, I was a marketing international business major, and I'd grown up studying foreign languages and traveling around the world. And I think of a pretty good appreciation for different cultures. What I did learn though, is that these global jobs are hard and you need to be constantly putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Very small cues, but important cues of what time zone is it for your colleagues versus the time zone that you're in right now? Little linguistic choices that using American phrases of things that may not resonate or frankly may have a completely different meaning in another culture, you need to be sensitive to. I think the other thing I would share, I learned that the choices I make for my family are ones I don't necessarily need to defend. So for example, when I had my children at Sony, I still traveled even when they were infants and the traveling was hard. You know, going to Japan from the East Coast of the US is a 14 hour flight. You typically lose one part of the weekend either going or coming back. And I learned that I don't need to apologize for that. When I accepted the, the Pottermore job, which was actually about eight years ago, I commuted to London and I spent nine months, about three weeks a month, 
living and working in London and then coming back a week working UK hours and being a mom. And while that wouldn't work for a lot of people, it worked for me and it worked for my family. So you had told us a little bit about the time that you were at Sony and then making this transition to Pottermore. That really was pretty fortuitous because your role from Pottermore actually came through the relationships you had at Sony. So I'd love to hear more about, you know, how you've approached networking and building these professional relationships and and how that really led to your your next adventure. Yeah, that's right. You know, I wound up at Pottermore, which is J.K. Rowling's digital content company for Harry Potter and the Wizarding World. I wound up there because in my last three years at Sony, Sony had made a financial investment in J.K. Rowling's company and was a primary commercial partner of that venture. And my boss at the time had asked me if I would steward that adventure or that investment, really, the investment, in addition to being an adventure. And in in doing that, I wasn't thinking about my next role. I wasn't thinking about what do I do with this or how do I turn this into something else? I just thought it was a really interesting piece of business that I was going to get to know. And when the senior leader decided to leave J.K. Rowling's company and go back into more traditional publishing, he's currently the CEO of HarperCollins in the U.K., J.K. Rowling and her agent asked if I would move to London and take that role. Now, that's not an opportunity that comes by every day, and that sounds pretty dramatic. But to your question, Sarah, that you're asking about networking, I think that these relationships we have are so important. The environments where we get our education, where we work, the types of people that we choose to surround ourselves with, all of that matters. And I think if you're approaching networking from a transactional perspective, I need a job or I need my next job or to grow in my industry, I think it becomes hard to do that from a genuine place. I think if you're looking at it just as this is another person or group of people that's come into my life for a really interesting point in time and I'm going to get to know them and I'm going to see where this takes me and I'm kind of open-ended about it, that's usually where the magic happens, to paraphrase what we learned at Harry Potter. Those tend to be really amazing moments that, again, you're not looking for something at the end of it, but you're really thinking about this as just an investment in your broader network and the people that you know. When I went to Stern, I had the fortune to go on the International Management Program, which took me to Sydney, Australia for a semester. And I'm still in touch with my friends and colleagues from that experience 20-something years ago. I'm still in touch with my Stern colleagues. I'm still in touch with my colleagues from London, and of course, all my colleagues from Sony. And now that I'm at Audible working in our marketplaces outside the US, I've got a whole new crop of people that I find a really delightful opportunity to be connecting them to each other and broadening that network. So it's, I guess it's coming from a a point of curiosity and also just a point of altruism. We'll be right back to our episode after this quick tip from Carrie Contianis. A lot of students and alumni of NYU don't realize that when you graduate from the university, you automatically get free membership in the NYU Alumni Association, which includes alumni from every NYU school. With a network of more than 600,000 NYU alumni worldwide, membership in the NYUAA begins upon graduation. As I mentioned, it's free and lifelong, and it includes an array of alumni benefits, such as global and local discounts, a lifetime NYU email address, and access to a wide variety of online resources like the NYU Violet Network and alumni lifelong learning webinars. 
You can also take advantage of exclusive alumni deals through NYU Perks Connect, which has discounts on everything from gym memberships and home and auto insurance to hotel and travel deals and gift cards. To learn more and to sign up for your Alumni Perks Connect account, you can go to nyu.edu slash alumni slash benefits. And now, back to the episode. So I, I want to take things in a slightly different direction. You talked at the beginning about how you had a few different interests, but you've sort of always rooted those things in your love of creativity, but also having this interest in business. What kinds of advice do you have for our listeners who are maybe really creative people who are interested in entrepreneurial work or, or have business aspirations, or just for people who are interested in this sort of non-traditional approach to industries or, or roles that they hope to work in? Well, I think the first thing, and you might have even just said this, Sarah, is that you have to know what you like and what your interests are. And those interests by nature tend to put you in a position of curiosity where you can keep seeing that interest expressed in different forms. So being creative, and I'm using air quotes now, that has a lot of different meanings. And so I think it's up to you to understand what makes you tick, what what are you excited about? How can you put yourself constantly in situations that are furthering your interest and and exposing you to new ideas? So for example, if if you're coming in a, a more creative field, maybe a non-traditional field that's visual and performing arts, you might be interested in seeing how those manifest themselves in museums or how they manifest themselves in nonprofits. And I think if you're interested in the business side of this, understanding how those things, how those ventures, how those initiatives make money is one of the most important things that you can know. Because if you've got this creative space that you're interested in, again, visual, performing, artistic, but understanding how that can actually be monetized, how that can make money, what's the root of what people are willing to pay for, that's where you can begin to actually see how these these worlds collide, so to speak. So my advice for people interested in that sector would be, be curious, put yourselves in situations where you can be exposed to things that you may know very little about, and find ways in which you can look to someone in industry or in a space that might know more than you or might be willing to talk to you for a few minutes, to have you join a board, to have you contribute. There's lots of different ways that you can do it, but I think starting with your own point of curiosity and parlaying that into understanding where those worlds intersect is probably the first piece of advice I'd give you. You've been at Audible for two years now, so a lot of that time has been since the start of the pandemic. I'm curious, First, what drew you to the position? But I'm also really curious what that experience has been like being in a company for a relatively short amount of time before seeing this this massive change that, that's been coming to everyone. Yeah, so let me first say I've been an Audible consumer for a long time. I had and still have you know accounts both in the UK and the US. So I've been a listener of the medium and probably because... My husband speaks English as a second language, as do my kids. Language and oral storytelling and using audio as a medium has always had a special significance for me and for our family. When I was at Harry Potter, I had the privilege of working with Audible and bringing those titles to Audible, as well as other partners like Apple and Google and and Amazon. 
And so I knew as Audible was growing, this is about five years ago or so, that audio was really growing as a medium. It's, it's very expressive. It forces you to use your imagination in a very different way than if you're simply watching video or reading. So it's really a complement to lots of other types of content that you can be consuming. And it's also just really fun. So when I went to Audible, it was really only about six or seven months before we all got sent home for the pandemic. And working on a global brand where entertainment content has completely taken off during the pandemic, I think you, like I, and, and many others are probably listening, reading, watching much more than we ever have. It's been really interesting to see how those patterns have been similar across the world, how consumers are utilizing different times of the day to listen to content to use our service and also how you're using the service for different reasons. You might be using it to be entertained or to escape. You might be using it to learn a new language. So there's lots of different reasons and different use cases you'd be using that. And we're seeing this over and over in every marketplace where we, we work. It's also been a little challenging in this global pandemic because we've all been so virtual, I've not met most of my team. And that looks to be the case for the short-term foreseeable future. And what's interesting about that and maybe coming full frame in our discussion is that you, you have to look at that as a positive. You have to find a way to work that to your benefit. And it's, it's been interesting for me as a, as a leader and a manager learning, learning that through this pandemic. I think we're all learning. Where do you see these industries really heading as we continue to explore new technologies and, and see where it's going to take us next? You know, there's never been a better time to be a content creator. You've got all the tools in the palm of your hand. They're easy and intuitive to use. There's also more services and more opportunities and more ways in which you can consume that content. So, you know, on the one hand, it's never been a better time to be a content creator. On the other hand, which is the flip side to that, there's so much that making sure you're finding an audience and that your content can actually be heard is a very real challenge. We all still have the same 24 hours in a day. And although these devices are sort of collapsing and combining, right? Who would have thought 20 years ago you would have had a telephone that you would hold in the palm of your hand that also had a camera embedded that would displace your need for a completely different separate physical camera, right? So these, these devices are making it easier for us to do all these things in a singular device at one time on the go with mobility, Yet at the same time, there's only 24 hours and there's just an overload of, of content offerings. The internet is so big. And yet at the same time, the world has become so small that that old adage of there's really something for everyone is absolutely the case. So I think you have to understand the relevancy of what you're creating and producing to an audience that you want to be reaching. Susan, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, Sarah, it's really nice to speak with you too. And please stay well in these extraordinary times. This has been Sarah Rosenthal with All in a Day's Work. See you next time. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log onto our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by Sarah Rosenthal with episode guest, Susan Jurevics. We're produced by Miriam Miller and Lily Smith, edited by Lily Smith, 
and created with support from Mia Perezford, Daniel Crystal, Haley Garofalo, Joseph Mercadante, and Carrie Contianis. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening.